Maybe seated. We were discussing Wednesday, practicing for this week and music, and uh, we were discussing where that song comes from. He is no fool. Comes from a journal entry by Jim Elliott as he contemplated going to an unreached people group. Baaka Indians, his professor at uh, Bible college told him that he was a fool, that uh, he would die if he went, that nobody survived going into the Alka territory. Nobody made it out alive. And it was shortly after that in his journal that he wrote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he could never lose. A summary of Jesus' statement, he who loses his life for my sake gains it, and he who keeps his life loses it. A summary of a gospel statement like when Jesus says, he who gives up mother and father for my sake, he who gives up his possessions for my sake gains, he doesn't lose. Uh, A thought of Paul as he says, we are already crucified with Christ. We are already dead, in other words. How can you kill a dead man, Paul would say. We're already dead. So let them take our life. Who cares? This life is but for a moment, but eternity is forever. And so that kind of perspective is what uh, brings about great theology. Great theology brings about great music like we were able to enjoy. One thing I want to say about Come Thou Fount, um, the second verse, although it it is one of my favorite songs, the second verse of the song we, you know, when we saw the verse we sang second, where it says, um, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Um, that is true. We are in debt to Christ for his grace. In other words, we are in the position of one who could not have attained eternal life lest he gave it to us. And so, in that way, we are indebted, but we are not treated as debtors by Jesus Christ. And neither are we treated as debtors by God. Because what does a debtor do? What must a debtor do? Pay back. God is not requiring you to pay Him back. You can't pay Him back. You cheapen the gift if you try to pay Him back. What you do now in this life is not pay back for what Christ did for you on the cross. What you do in your Christian life is obedience. It is the outflow of a changed life. That's why 1 John says, If you love me, what? You will obey my commands. It's not if you obey me, you love me. That would would be perversion. If you love me, then the natural outflow of that love is obedience. It's not payment. God doesn't accept payment for salvation except one. And it has been finished, and He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and His blood is enough. And so, I agree. I hope what He means, I hope what He means when He says that in the song. I believe, I want to believe what He means. Mr. Robinson, I believe means that, that we are in the position of not being able to earn salvation, and God has given it to us. It's free. It's ours. Because He follows up with, He chained my wandering heart to you. You know, I would wander, but you've chained me to you. You won't let me go. And so I, I choose to believe that's what he means. 
Uh, and, but, but I'm afraid too many people sing it as if we're going to pay back God. And so I want to just put that in there. I've, I've learned some theology this week. Um, practically, I want to share with you. Uh, we, yesterday, we had a birthday party for uh, my little niece, Isabella, Maria. And uh, uh, we were having a great time at the um, party. It was at this jumping thing. That's the new rage, you know, the jumping centers for the little kids. And I noticed something. My son, probably because he's a boy, um, disregards all these voices around him. He just plays. He could care less what anybody's saying, what they're doing. His grandmothers were there. His great-grandmother was there. His papas were there. He was running and playing like a Comanche, you know. All the girls were timid. Well, I said something, we started going in the place. He sees the jumping apparatuses. His eyes get about this big. He sits down in the floor because he knows he's been to the one here in Anderson. You've got to take your shoes off. As soon as his shoes get off his feet, he's running wide open, full steam, into the jump bouncy thing and almost turns a flip. You know, he hits it so hard. He's so excited about getting up there and jumping. All the little girls scared to death. My son's wild. And his... Grandparents were scared to death, you know, because he has no fear. He'd just come off the thing. He doesn't, he doesn't care. You know, it's concrete floor down here. He doesn't understand pains involved in that fall. And they're, Noah, Noah, you know, they're calling his name. He no regard for it. He just goes. But if his mother or I said, Noah James or Noah, not hollering, just call his name. Immediately he responded. And I thought, you know, after a few instances like that, I thought, you know, that is, that is a perfect example of John 10. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and they answer me. They come to me. They listen to me. They stop when I call them. All these other people, he says, are calling the sheep. Nobody, they don't listen. They pay it no, no attention. But when I speak, my sheep hear my voice, and they come to me. And uh, so I got to see that practically lived out when they're the picture is the Father in heaven is calling those who will be saved and they will come to Him. They are His children and they will respond to His voice. They won't respond to the hirelings. They only respond to Jesus. And, that, and I got to see that lived in my own child. Now, unfortunately, it breaks down because my child doesn't listen to me all the time. And uh, sometimes he pays the price for that. He falls down, smacks his nose or something like that. But I got to see that. And I also got to see... Um, uh, on the other side of that, I spent the whole day with my mom at Friday. I would ask you to continue to pray for my family. I got to see uh, my mom, and, you know, she has Alzheimer's. She's a young lady, 53 years old. She has Alzheimer's, and it is progressively worsening. I mean, pretty progressive. And, um, but I got to spend time with her, and I got to hear as she could not complete sentences all the time, but as she expressed to me, what she looked forward to was heaven. What she looked forward to was being with Jesus. And, you know, we, she, was, she would say, do you remember this song? And she could just re remember a few lines, and I, I would, you know, sing a little with her, and she would, yeah, that's it. She would start singing along, you know. And it, and it was clear, it was obvious that she was at rest. She was at peace in Christ because she knew she was going to be with him if she died today, you know. And I got to see that hope that Paul expresses in 1 Timothy 4 when he says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering already, and the time has come, and I am departing. I am going. 
and I'm run, I've run the race, I've completed the fight, I'm finished. You know, in a lot of ways, my mom is finished for the Lord. Uh, she, she can't do a lot of the things that she would like to do. She's finished in a lot of ways, but she still has hope and she still is fulfilling purpose because she looks forward. She's straining for the finish line when she's going to go and receive the reward laid up for her in heaven through the grace of Jesus Christ and the cross. And so I got to live those things. And, you know, I, it, I just want to encourage you. Theology happens all around us every day. The Bible is lived out for us. We just have to have our spiritual eyes on. We have to be walking in the Spirit so we might see this theology being lived in front of us. Theology is not uh, academia. That's academia. Everybody's not called to academia. The few, uh, few unfortunate souls are called to live their life that way. All of us are not. But theology is not academia. Theology is the most practical thing in all of the world because it tells us about God in our life. The problem is Christians don't live in theology. That's the whole problem. We don't live our lives in theology. We live our lives in anthropology, the study of man instead of the study of God. And so we see natural occurrences as natural instead of natural occurrences that are used by a supernatural God for supernatural purposes. But you have the choice every day when you get out of your bed to see life as theology lived out. You have that opportunity. You don't have to have been to seminary. You don't have to have been some great student. You don't have to be smart. I know, I know people in the past who haven't even had the ability to read, but yet they see life as theology. And so live your life that way. A drive to work is only a drive to work if you let it be. But a drive to work can be a worship service. It can be a practice and an exercise of theology. Washing your dishes can be just washing dishes or... It can be a practice of theology for you as you think about the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit in your life and how your sins are washed away. And then you can begin to repent of sin and be washed and made clean. Raising children is just raising little children unless you see it as an opportunity to see the biblical truths of the Bible played out in real life. And you see that they respond to the voice of their parents and they don't respond as naturally to other people and you see how they just simply accept things by faith all of you who have little children or who have worked with little children know this is true they ask deep questions and expect and they accept with faith simple answers we ask simple questions and can't accept the answers we're given for those simple questions but children ask deep probing questions by nature they do it why, why this and what about this and how is this true? And when you give them an answer, and especially if you've raised them to respect the Lord's word, when you give them a, a scripture answer, they just accept it. It might be the most complex subject, but they accept it by faith. And so you understand and you get to live out the theology that Jesus says, unless you are like one of these, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Life is theology. Life is, is holy. All of life. One of the greatest sins of the modern evangelical movement is it makes church... Aaron and I were talking about this this week. It makes church sacred and it makes life something you just go live. We need to get out of that false and stinking thinking. We need to get out of that. All of life is sacred. Every bit of it. 
None of it is ours. It's all God's. So no matter what you do, if you teach school, if you raise children, if you're a doctor, if you're a nurse, if you, whatever you do, it's holy. Rod and I were talking, just little things you learn about theology. Rod and I were talking, he was talking about he was giving counsel to this pe- these people, and, and the conclusion was that they didn't feel like he was biblical enough. When all he sees is biblical, that's all he understands. He, he, it comes from that secular, sacred debate. Everything can be sacred. Everything can be. So what makes it? The Holy Spirit in you. You are the temple of God. So whatever you do, it's, it can be sacred. Moms that stay at home, because my, my wife does, I want to encourage you. You have, you have the greatest opportunity with your little children. You have the greatest of opportunities. And it is neglected, and it is downtrodden and looked down on like it's just some menial task. It's not. Raising children is one of the greatest opportunities to see Christ in life. So I want to challenge you. Don't give up the fight. I know, I know it's it's mundane. I know it gets hard. I know you don't get connection with other people. Except those little children. Sometimes they come home and Amy's like, all I've done is talk to a three year old all day. I just want some adult conversation. I come home, I've had all the adult conversation I can stand. I want to act like a kid, you know? She needs me to sit and talk with her and relate. And it's in those days that I, I want to encourage her so much and I hope you husbands encourage your wives so much. What you're doing matters for a lifetime. You are making America. You are making the next generation. You are making the next kingdom of heaven. You're doing it right now. So let's live our lives that way. Let's live our lives in practical theology. That's really what this is all about. And in some ways, that ties in with our message, although you probably just got a two-for-one special. Trying to understand John's baptism. Trying to understand John's baptism. is, a, And I want to take a broad look at ten verses today, drawing out of them one truth, and that is that baptism is identification. More than anything, what we should be discussing when we talk about baptism is that we are identifying with Jesus Christ. So many of us get caught up in whether all of you got put under the water, some of you got put under the water, or just hit and miss pieces of you got put under water. In other words, did you get dunked, did you get poured, did you get sprinkled, you know? And so uh, all of us seem to get caught up on that. And then some of us get caught up on, was it when you were a child or was it when you after you were saved? But I want to draw us back to the, real practical thing that we should be talking about when we look at baptism. I want to do it from John and, and John the Baptist. Let's look at John 1, 24-34. The, the, we've already talked about they, the, the Pharisees have sent uh, a group of Jews to ask the question, Who are you? Who are you? And John says, I am not the Christ. I am not the prophet. I am the one, as Isaiah said, crying in the wilderness, a voice that's crying out, make straight the way of the Lord in the wilderness, in the rough places. Make straight the way of the Lord. He's already said who he is. Now they come back and they say, if you're not Christ, in verse 24 they say, if you're not Christ and you're not Elijah, nor are you the prophet, then why do you baptize people? They want to know, why are you doing this if you're not one of those three individuals? He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one 
you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. We'll come back to some of those things, but I want us to look at what John was doing. He made that statement while he was baptizing people in the Jordan River, across in Bethany. And then Jesus comes to him and he makes this, and we're going to come back to this statement on Easter. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was his pronouncement about Jesus to to those who were gathered. But he says later, look at verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Why was he baptizing? So that he might identify Jesus Christ. Jesus as the Christ to Israel. That's what he said. And then he says uh, in the account, uh, in the account, he continues there in verse 33. This is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Not with water, in other words. He does it with the Holy Spirit. Matthew 3 says, I baptize with water, but he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so we have this baptism, it's right here. We, we need to try to understand it. I want to do the best I can to bring some um, rational understanding to some words here and then build a case for why baptism is so important. And, and to do that, I want to say up front, I know you got a healthy dose of a lot of perspectives in, Sunday, in uh, Bible study, Sunday Bible study, about the beginnings. And there are some... Uh, people, great men there that disagree over exactly the nuances of that, uh, how it all came about. Although we strongly believe in a young earth and six days of creation. We believe in that strongly. There are great men who disagree with us and hold different varying views. And I say they're great men because they still extol God as the creator. We just disagree over the semantics of it. I think it's important. I'm not trying to say it's not important. The same is true in this subject. We spend so much time laughing and scoffing and beating each other up over the subject of baptism that I believe we miss the whole point of why baptism is in the Scripture and why it's important to you and to me and to our children. We choose rather to beat each other up to prove our point to be right and make them wrong, in other words, to be adversarial about it rather than seeing the common ground of whatever view you hold in baptism. We're not going to get into views so much today as we are words and meanings. There are two, first of all, you need to understand the first point I'm going to spend a lot of time telling you in this first point, words that mean baptized, okay? Original words that mean baptized and define them for you. And then I want to talk to you about the meaning of baptism. So that's what we're doing today. What are the words for baptizing the Scripture? And then what, do they, what is the greatest meaning? What's the greatest thing I can draw from this? The first word in the Greek is babto. B-A-P-T-O if you transliterated, if you took the Greek and moved it into English just without putting any English word on it. That's not an English word. If you type it in your computer, it'll tell you misspelled. In other words... Uh, it's just bringing it down, literally. Babto. That word means to dip, to immerse. Babto. Now, that would make it easy. If that was the word used all of the time throughout Scripture, there would be no question about it. We'd say it means to dip them, to immerse them, to submerge them. That's what the word means. 
But there's this other word that is used more often. And it is baptizo. B-A-P-T-I-Z-O, if you transliterate it. And your English word, baptize, is the transliteration. You know what? If you go to your word uh, program on your computer and you tap, type baptizo in, it will automatically correct it if you have your spell check English grammar on to baptize. Because that's the word. That's the English word for baptizo. All right? And that word has two meanings. It can mean to dip or immerse. It can also mean to identify, to set apart by any means. All right? So there's a choice that has to be made. And I've already kind of told you that that's the word that's used most of the time. Baptizo, not babto. So we have this great question. The ancient writers often use this word to describe the change that occurs by any means. Let me give you an example. In other words, they would say that the cloth underwent baptizo in the dye. You took a white piece of cloth, linen or something, you stuck it down into the dye, you submerged it in the dye, and it changed colors. It went through a change by the means of what we would call baptism or submersion. And if that was the only way they used it, we would again say, boy, us Baptists are right, all these other people are wrong. But they also say, often, that the drunk man is baptized by liquor or by wine. Now, do they mean that that drunk man went and took a bath in wine and stuck his head under? No. <laughs> no. That's not what that cannot be what they mean. What do they mean? That man becomes a drunk man by being changed by wine. How is he changed? He loses his control. He loses his sensibility. He loses his operations in a lot of ways. He is changed internally. His balance is off now because of the wine. He's changed. So it's by any means necessary. See, what does he do? He's not submerged in it. He intakes it. All right? Now, unless you're going to take some weird position about internal submersion or something, I don't know. But you're not left with the choice that it can only mean underwater, submerged completely at this point. There is some room here to try to understand what we're really talking about. And I think this is where we need to go with ease and with, with love and concern for all the brethren and, and seek, seek out the meaning. Nicander. A, a Greek, a classical Greek writer, he in 200 BC is writing about, of all things, canning vegetables. <laughs> Aaron knows what example. This is a famous example. He says the vegetable must be, he uses the word babto in the boiling water. Okay? Must be submerged in boiling water. And then he says it should be drawn out and baptizo into the vinegar. Okay? Again, they both mean submerge, right? I mean, obviously you're going to submerge it in the water and then you're going to submerge it in, in the vinegar. But what is the difference? Does the water change the vegetable? No. The water doesn't change the vegetable. The vinegar changes the vegetable, though. 
We can say it is absolutely a different thing when it comes out of that vinegar. It has been identified, identified, you would take it as a, in other words, a cucumber is a cucumber until you stick it in vinegar for long enough, and then what is it? A pickle. It's changed. Its identity is different. Two words in the same writing, right? The water didn't change it. That's where it said he baptized it. He put it under the water. He submerged it. But then over here he says, I baptized it, it changed. And so I want to use these working definitions here. Bapto, submerge only. Baptizo, the word used most of the time in the scripture when we talk about baptism, can mean submerge. It can also mean to identify and to change by any means. Isaiah 21.4 says, transgression baptizes me. My soul is overcome with fear. What does he mean? Isaiah means he is changed by sin. When I wasn't in sin, when I was living righteously, obediently, I had courage. But when I lived in sin, I was baptized, changed by means. What was the means? Sin. And that sin changed me and I became fearful in my heart. See that? Some of you have experienced that. I experience it often. Surety, surety, surety. I'm, I'm on the path, on the path, on the path, and then sin enters and I'm confused. And I'm fearful. That's what Isaiah is talking about. He uses the word baptizo, baptized. Galatians 3.27 for a New Testament example says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. What does he mean that we actually... Put on the carcass of Jesus? No. We've identified. We've been changed by being baptized into Christ. Okay? So we have examples of what the word baptizo best understood means identity change by any means possible. Now, what is the greater meaning? The greater meaning of baptism is not that you are dipped in water. It's not that you're dipped in water. That's not the greatest meaning of baptism. The greatest meaning of baptism is that you are, cha- you are being identified with Christ, changed by any means possible. That's the greatest meaning in the Scripture. That's the greatest meaning here in the, John the Baptist. Try, when we're trying to understand John's baptism, we have to understand this. Now I want to use some text where this has to be the understanding of the word baptizo, if you don't understand this way, you end up in heresy. Mark 16, 16. Mark 16, 16. Uh, matter of fact, I'll read it. I'll read it to you. Uh, want to make sure we're clear. Mark 16, verse 16. Jesus' words. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But he, whoever does not believe, will be condemned. Now, the church of Christ take this verse and they build the doctrine of regeneration by baptism. This is what they build their doctrine on, this verse. Whoever believes and is baptized. That's why somebody that believes in regenerational baptism will say to you, you must be dunked in water to be saved. Now, Not in a mean spirit, but I want to say that means Jesus lied to us on the cross when he said that the thief who died that day and was not baptized in any water 
went to heaven. Jesus was lying. He had to have been. And we know Jesus doesn't lie. So we have to understand what does this word baptized mean in this text. What it means is that he who is identified with Christ is saved. If you believe, Jesus says, the one who believes and is identified with me is saved. How do we know that's true about the thief on the cross? Because the thief on the cross didn't look at the Roman soldiers. He didn't look to some idol. He didn't look to his own good works. He didn't look to anything except Jesus. And he said, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Remember me. And what did Jesus say? This day you will be with me in paradise. Why? Because you believed and you identified with me. Water wasn't necessary. He baptized him right there on the cross. He identified him. He said, you're mine. And that is so relieving for the hundreds of thousands who have died before they entered the baptismal pool. Or their relatives have. How about the thousands who have burned on ships or drowned after they called out for salvation, drowned in a sinking ship? Or how about the hundreds who have died in a mine somewhere, collapsed on them for hours at a time, and their last etchings in a wall was, I believed in Jesus Christ. I believed in Jesus Christ. Are we to take that they are lost now? No, we have hope in Jesus Christ. He has identified them. They are His. And so we have this in Mark 16, 16. John 1, 12 says, I want to give you an, a, a biblical answer why I believe this. Because John 1, 12 says, But to all who received Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. He doesn't say all who received Him and believed in Him and were baptized. He says, all who receive Me and believe in My name are children of God. And so we have this case built. All right, we have that example. Let's move to another example. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 2. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul gives um, an explanation of the children of Israel wandering in the desert. And he says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. You see the word under? They were baptized, the Greek says. They were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. You see that? Baptizo is the word there. Identified has to be what that means. Because the children of Israel weren't submerged in the Red Sea. If anybody was babto in the Red Sea, it was the Egyptian army. <laughs> right? We have a stronger argument for them being saved by the water than we do for the children of Israel. <laughs> and the cloud wasn't over them, it was behind them. It separated them. What did it do? It marked out clearly for everyone to see this is the children of God and this is not. The cloud separated them. And they were baptized into Moses in what sense? Before they crossed the Red Sea, what were they saying immediately before they crossed the Red Sea? Immediately before God parted the water, what did they say? Oh, we should have gone back to Egypt. I knew we never should have left. They were rebelling. But when they passed through the Red Sea, they have a Holy Spirit worship service on the other side with Miriam playing her tambourine. They were dancing. What were they saying? Oh, how great is our God? 
He's delivered us from the hand of the Egyptians. He's delivered us through the sea. Now what did they say? Moses will follow you wherever you want to go. They identified with Moses, and from here on out, they're going to be called in their wilderness wanderings the followers of Moses. Moses is who their leader is. And they're going to go from rebellion to obedience. And this is an identity for them for the rest of uh, time. We still say that. All right, one more text. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. I know that some of you Bible scholars out there were saying he's going to struggle. He'll never attempt this. He's going to leave that one alone. Now, you should know me better than that. If it's difficult, he will try it. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Otherwise, Paul says, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, hum, humanly speaking, I fought with the beast, with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We have a very difficult subject there. It seems if we read it and we take the word babto, we would have to say, if he was using the word babto, that these people are being immersed in the water for the dead. And there is a cult, the Mormons, who do this. They baptize for their dead relatives. And they base it off of this text. Now I want to say something quickly. The Roman Catholics don't make this error, and yet it would seem that would be a great error for them to make, seeing that their system is based on works and merit, and that you can add merit to another's life. It would seem they would make this step, but they don't. They don't. They don't do this. They do masses for the dead. They do all these things for the dead, but they don't baptize people for the dead. If you weren't baptized before, then you're just in trouble, you know? Better hope somebody else is giving you some other merit. So, but it seemed it would be lucrative, wouldn't it? I mean, if my mom or dad died without Christ and we could be baptized and they could be sent to heaven, you better believe I would go there. I would want my parents to be saved if it was possible that way. But it's not possible, and that's not what Paul means here. I want to read to you the text, taking the meaning baptizo holds, which is identifying and substituting it in here. Look what he says. For what is the sense of being identified as dead men if the dead rise not at all? Why should they be identified as dead? Why should they be crucified with Christ? And why are we standing in jeopardy every hour? Why are we in danger of persecution by authorities for our way of life? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am identified with Christ in His death every day. That is, I am baptized every day. If after the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what does it get me? If the dead rise not. If there is no resurrection, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall be dead. The passage is a great argument for identifying with the death of Jesus Christ, because then we will receive the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you look at the context, he's talking about identifying with Christ in the resurrection. Because he is resurrected, I will be resurrected. That's his great argument in this whole chapter, is 
because Jesus was resurrected, you will be resurrected if you believe in Him. And so he concludes by saying, if you are dead now in this life, if your relatives are dead now in this life, are baptized and identified into the death of Christ, then they will be raised. And if not, then why identify with death in Christ? Because there's no resurrection? Let's just go live. This is all life's all we got. Let's just go live it. Have a good time. Eat, drink. That was the way of saying, be merry. Have fun. Have a party. But Paul says you can't do that. Why? Because there's more than this life. And you are identified not only with his death, but you're baptized not only into his death, but into his resurrection. And so the, this is far from a statement about resurrection, I mean, ba- uh, baptism for the dead. This is a great statement where we're being called to identify with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and one day in his resurrection. We're going to receive the resurrection. So we have argued, I think, I hope, and if you have any questions afterwards, it'd be appropriate time to ask about this word and why we take it to mean this and why it means more than only immersing someone in the water. But I think we've made that point, or I feel like we have. I want to go to then... How was Jesus baptized by John the Baptist? How was he baptized? Why was he baptized? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus didn't sin. He wasn't being saved. Why? Why? Well, John, furthermore, let's ask the question the Jews ask in our text. Why baptize anybody? John, why are you baptizing anybody? Matthew 3.11 says, John said, I baptize you with water, for repentance. In other words, he says, when we look at the text, the word there is baptizo, and it definitely means that he is identifying those who have repented. People came to the desert. They heard John preach. They believed and repented, and John baptized them as a way of setting them apart, identifying them as repenters, those who believed in the Messiah. That's what he was doing. He set them apart. He marked them this way so that they would be forever known as the ones baptized. Okay? And so they they were forever the ones who had repented. And so Jesus, in John John 1.31, Jesus is baptized, or is going to be baptized. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Baptism for Jesus is not about repentance, it's about identification. This is the way Jesus is identified to the Jews. At his baptism, he was being dunked in the water. When he came straightway out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove, and a voice from heaven called out, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He was identified for everybody to understand and see, This is the Messiah, this is my Son. And so he was being marked. He was being identified. John was baptizing. He didn't know when Jesus was coming. He just knew he was coming. He knew there would be one who was coming. He was sent to make his way straight, to make his way easy in a sense. So he's preaching the gospel and people are being saved and he's identifying them as repenters. And then can you see the glorious day that the Son of Man, the Son of God walks towards him at the Jordan and he sees him. And he says just above verse 31 in verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus walks down into the water, not because he was a sinner, but because he was needing to be identified. And he was buried and raised from the dead as a picture for us of identification. I am the Messiah. And then the Father gives his seal of approval by the Spirit 
and by his voice. And so he's identified. And so Jesus, far from being baptized for sin, which he did not have, is identifying with us in his baptism. He's identifying with us. How did I I make that jump? Hebrews uh, chapter 11. I've been studying a lot in Hebrews and Romans 8 and trying to understand some very difficult truths and maybe one day I'll feel comfortable enough with them to even talk about them to you. Right now I don't. Except just to give you this picture. Because I believe Moses was identified for the people of God in his day also. Verse uh, 24, 11, 24. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting uh, pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, what what are we saying? What am I trying to say here? I want you to get this picture. Moses, in the Old Testament, rejected the greatest wealth of all the world, which was Egypt, so that he might be named among the people of God, so he might identify with Christ, with the Messiah, right? He gave up wealth. He gave up temporary pleasure for the eternal reward. That's what motivated him. Don't miss it. What his motivation was not that he was thankful that God had done something in the past, He was thankful, but his motivation was the reward set before him. Okay? Jesus Christ left the treasures of heaven so that he might come to this earth and be identified with us, the people of God, through his baptism and through his setting apart. And then he might be identified with us, counting it greater to be identified with us than to gain all the treasure of heaven. And then his father gave him the reward. Right? For the reward set before him, he endured the cross. And we see the beginning of this identification, not at the cross, but at his baptism. He's identified with the people of God through his baptism. He's set apart. He's identified. That has nothing to do with his sin. It has nothing to do with sin because Jesus didn't sin. It has everything to do with saying, I have come here. I am identifying with you. I am your Messiah. I've given up all of heaven, all of the eternal reward so that my Father might punish me on your behalf, and then for the reward set before me, the great bride that my Father will give me, I endure the cross. And now the Father has exalted His name above every name, so that at the name of Him, Jesus Christ, we may all bow, all of heaven, all of earth, all of hell might bow down to this one who has identified Himself with us. And it begins at the baptism. Baptism is a beautiful identification with Jesus Christ. Now, when I tell you that, who here would not want to be baptized? Why would you not want to be baptized? That's my question. We can ask a lot of questions about baptism. Well, one of them should never be, well, I just don't see why it's so important. Because we have the awesome opportunity to confess to everybody we are with him. He identified himself with us. Why would we not identify ourselves with him? And so that's the argument of Paul, Romans 6. You've died to sin. You've been baptized together with Christ in the death, and you'll be raised up for everlasting life. It's the spiritual identification. It's the spiritual identification. 
Now I'm going to stir the pot and then leave it for next week. What does this tell us about John's baptism? Well, it, it's not simple uh, continuation of circumcision. John wasn't baptizing people to continue circumcision. He couldn't because these people were already circumcised. And so they would have no need for this sign. Only the Gentiles would have the need for baptism. It would not be universal. In other words, the Jews were circumcised in the covenant. Now we need a way to bring the Gentiles in. It's not quite right to circumcise uh, men at an old age. So we'll, God substituted out of mercy for baptism. All right? That wouldn't be the case here. That would not be the case. So it's not just a continuation. The Jews make the point, you know, that they are the children of Abraham in Matthew 3. And Jesus tells them later, I can raise up stones for God out of the stones. Don't make yourself too proud. Circumcision was a sign of ethnic continuity, brought the people together ethnically. Baptism is a sign of a spiritual reality. Everyone who was circumcised is not a believer. Everyone who is truly baptized in the Spirit, identified with Christ, is a believer and is saved. All right? I didn't use the word water because I don't believe that's what sets you apart. That's not what identifies you. The Spirit baptizes you. John, second thing, John's baptism was a sign of personal, individual repentance, not a sign of birth into a covenant family. Your birth was not enough. You needed to repent individually and be baptized, identified. It's hard to overstate how radical this was in John's day. That's why they were upset about it. That's why it bothered the Jews so much. The Jews already had a sign of the covenant, and it was the circumcision. John came calling for repentance and offering a new sign, baptism. And it was incredibly offensive, far more offensive even than when a Baptist today says baptism is not a sign to be received by infants born into a Christian home, but a sign of repentance and faith that a person chooses for himself. Even if he... Uh, already has been christened as an infant the way the Jews were circumcised as infants, then he should be baptized anew when he's saved. You might argue that children should be christened as infants, as a sign of the covenant. That may be, but I would still say go ahead and baptize them when they're saved to identify them with Jesus Christ. That, that would be my argument. John, uh, the third thing about John's baptism is it fits what we're going to see all in the New Testament and for the first two centuries of the Christian church until Tertullian mentions infant baptism, nobody knows what it is. It's not in any historical record about infant baptism until 200 A.D. And they don't have any record of it. Believers were baptized, not infants. And the reason what, uh, was that baptism was the sign of belonging to the new people of God who were constituted not by birth or ethnic identity, but by repentance and faith of Jesus Christ. And then finally, I want to challenge you. Why should you be baptized? Well, because God calls us to repent and believe in Christ alone for our salvation. But the mark of that identification outwardly. You know, there's no such thing as an altar call like Billy Graham does anywhere in the Scripture. I'm not speaking against Dr. Graham or those who play 15 verses of Just As I Am to try to get somebody to come forward. I'm not talking against those people. Many people have been saved at those meetings. And many people who walk down those aisles are saved, but not all of them. And when we call people to make a cattle call conversion, we confuse them, I believe. We confuse them because they think they're identifying by coming forward. I came forward. I prayed the prayer. I am in Christ. 
And that's not the case always. Because many emotional decisions are made and many wrong decisions are made and many uh, people come just because Aunt Nail will be happy if I do it. And that's not a reason for salvation. And so why would we condone something that confuses people? Let's take the stance that Jesus took about the parables with baptism. What does baptism do then? Once you have distributed and shown fruit of conversion, I will gladly baptize you, excitedly baptize you as a mark, an identifying mark of your repentance outwardly to other people. Because it's not necessary for salvation. We don't have to rush to it. Let's do it with thought and with candor. I am in Christ. I am baptized into his death spiritually and ready for his resurrection spiritually. And I want to show everybody that. And that's what I'm going to argue in the next couple of weeks. That's the purpose of baptism. That's why I so strongly believe in believers' baptism through immersion. I think it's the most beautiful picture. It's the most complete picture but that's why I refuse to cast stones at those who don't do it my way. Because the scripture gives us some lenience, some ambiguity. And so I love them. I love them with the love of Christ. And I say, let anyone who repents be baptized. If you've repented and you have not been baptized and you want to be baptized because you have repented and you are a believer, please let us baptize you. In a public service, in a public way, let us do it. And not before, and not before, because we do not seek to confuse you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this sign, this beautiful picture that you've given us in the Scripture. May we treat it as such, not as just something to be lightly entered into, just frivolously run down some aisle and say a few words and say, oh, I'm a Christian, and be baptized that same day. But help us to be like Paul, as Stephanus and his whole household were baptized. Why? Because the scripture clearly says they served God together. They were baptized together because they served God together. And God, we thank you for those words because to me, Lord, it seals up the case that fruit is helpful in setting a person apart, not just words. Their life change identifies them and then we just simply identify them, give them a way to identify them with your people here on the earth. Help us, to, Lord Jesus, to have sweet communion this week as we think that you identified with us through your baptism, that you gave up the treasure of heaven and the equality with your Father to come here and be like us, baptized like us. Lord, I praise your name for that. I thank you for John and his great strong witness, which he still bears witness today, telling us, that we must repent and believe to be saved. Thank you, Lord, for your word, which is all we need for salvation and life. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. You have announcements on the front of your...